Welcome to Baby's Soft Murder Hands. Where we talk, chat, argue, BS, and maybe even inform you about all things video games. So if you could first just introduce yourself. I'm Michael Abrash from Valve Software. Thank you. And your work in the field of um, programming and also in the technical level of game design is quite... Well, to be clear. Go ahead. Um, my work's been in the area of programming, and I worked on Quake, as John said, I was his right-hand man. I am not a game design person. Okay. I'm a programmer, and so I've done game programming, as Quake definitely shows. I've also done a lot of other types of programming. I was the um, graphics lead for the first two versions of Windows NT. Um, I worked uh, for Rad Software, working with Intel on the Larrabee project, which was effectively designing both hardware and a software pipeline running on it. I've worked even on natural language processing. I'm really a programmer. We appreciate that honesty. Do you yourself play video games regularly? I play video games some, so here's the funniest part. I get motion sick playing first-person shooters. Every day when I worked on Quake, at the end of the day, I'd walk out into that parking lot in Mesquite, and I would wonder how I was going to drive home because I felt so motion sick. It's funny you mention that because Todd also mentioned that he gets motion sick too. And the fact that I'm working on you know, head-mounted displays, which probably are going to... Well, actually, so I currently know that the existing expensive ones not perfectly calibrated without great optics make me motion sick. So um, I may be inventing a future I can't participate in. No. Uh, I have a little question about your time back at Microsoft and just about your history as a programmer in general. Where did your story and your history with programming really start? Um, the real start was at Clark University um, in 1975 when I took a, I was a ge geography major, I took a Fortran programming for geographers and it was just so obvious. So, it just uh, kind of went with you and it worked. Yeah. Well, the professor, uh, whose name was Dick Howard, he was great, he ended up at Digital, but he, uh, he would write the assignment on the board at the beginning of class. I have no idea why. And then at the end of class, he'd talk about what the assignment involved. And instead of really listening carefully, I would just write the code on paper during class and then go and type it in and run it. It's funny you should say that because um, in the programming classes I've taken myself, I've noticed the ones who sit all the way in the back are not paying attention a lot to what's being said, more just doing all the lab work and doing everything in class time. Uh, I was guilty of this as well sometimes, uh, which is why eventually some of our teachers would start doing pop quizzes on what they said. Uh, <laughs> so they found a way to be noticed. Um, would you say that the lecture is really what's more important or just understanding the concept and the core rather than the vocabulary behind it? Uh, what, what's the choice there? I wasn't quite clear on the um, question. Basically, instead of understanding what the parts of the car are called and how to explain it, more importantly, how to put the car together, if you will. So, one of the things I've gained an appreciation for over time is that there are certain types of things that only work if you have a strong, deep mental model of them. And my experience was that there are specific classes in which the professor is trying to convey that and it's boring and hard to learn because there's no specific reason that you need it at that time but that if you do the work to gain that mental model 
you can do a great deal more. So in grad school, I took um, a statistics class. And it was the hardest class I've ever taken. I spent probably 30 hours a week on it. And at the end, I realized I actually understood it. I mean, not understood it in the sense of I could answer the questions, but understood in the sense that I could derive how to solve things. And I think that's what good teachers dream of their students doing, and that's what they're trying to put out there. But unfortunately, it's a hard process generally, and certainly with something like programming, which is for people who get it so easy, and it's such a malleable medium, it's almost impossible to get people to sit still and listen through all this theory and so forth rather than just doing it. So, I mean, basically I taught myself to program um, in most respects, and there, are, there were definitely holes in what I knew, and I mean, you know, over time I filled most of those holes in, but it would have helped to have, had, to have been forced to go through learning the, the full theoretical structure behind those, except I would have been bored out of my mind. Because that was, that was the last significant, well, that and a half-credit assembly language class that summer, that's the last formal education I had. I mean, I'm, I'm a geography, I have a degree in geography and a master's degree in energy management. And you're, of course, most popular for, or at least at that time, for assembly level coding and things like that. Oh, well, that, this was before that. This, so I learned assembly language programming on a Xerox mini computer. Talk about your uh, long lost skills. What did you do before working at Valve? I worked at Rad Software for eight years. And uh, with Mike Sarton, I wrote uh, Pixomatic, which is a software renderer, and then worked on the Larrabee project. Um, we worked with Intel. Um, and Larrabee's been written about a lot, so I have no further comments on that. Now, obviously with coming to Valve, you've kind of thrown yourself back in a spotlight to a degree. Um, how are you dealing with some of the attention that you're now getting that you weren't so much used to before? Well, you know, I'm not really getting that much more attention. I certainly didn't intentionally put myself back in the spotlight. Um, but the, the big attention I've gotten is a lot of mail. And uh, that's, I mean, that's fine. I, you know, one of the things about working with John was that John's theory is that you try to share information, you try to teach people things, and that inherently says that you have to, you know, you interact with people to do that. You can't just be in a show. And I mean, you look at QuakeCon, you say, John yesterday got up there and talked for four hours, which is pretty yeah, remarkable. It was, it was and it was really yeah. saying, here's my mental model of the world. Here, I'm going to share this with you. <clears throat> and, uh, to a significant extent, that's how I look at the ways in which I've become more visible since I went back to Valve. I mean, the blog is kind of like, here's a dialogue of what we're looking at and what we're thinking about. The other piece of that is to say that Valve's a really interesting place that's doing things you might not expect out of a game company, and people who are smart, self-motivated, and have relevant experience, and I, I want to emphasize the relevant experience part because I did get a lot of mail from people who sound like they're great people, and it's, you know, they can do great things, but not working on, say, AAA virtual reality or augmented reality or AAA games because it's just not what they've done, right? I mean, you know... They need you some can, more small experience to handle bigger jobs. No different so than Teddy Roosevelt's philosophy. What, well, we look for, basically, it says on the website, but, you know, if you don't have several years of deep experience, you're not ready yet because Valve's a place where we don't teach you, we don't mentor you. You come in and you contribute. <clears throat> um, but we are always looking for those people. I mean, the... The biggest thing to us is getting the right people in there because that's what enables what you can do. So I, that's another reason that I've become more visible because it's a way of saying to people, look how interesting this work is. And one of the nice things is all I have to do is say, this is what I'm doing because it is that interesting. 
now we've done a lot of interviews with other developers and today and yesterday programmers and, and also producers and they all say that the most important thing of all is your portfolio, the finished projects that you've done, which is in line with obviously what you just said. So <clears throat> that that's true that you have that experience. The other part is though that since we don't have we don't have job titles and people switch projects and things can change at any time, that you have to be able to think broadly as well as deeply, you need to be able to be a problem solver. You know, we wouldn't say we're going to hire someone because they have the specific skill that we need for the specific project. Because you know, our desks are on wheels. It could be you get you wheel your desk down to another project. Can you contribute there as well? What would you say overall is your fondest moment of working with John on the Quake engine during, <coughs> say, crunch time? <coughs> well, that one's pretty easy. Um, the whole project was crunch time, but so John was trying to solve the potentially visible set problem, and what I mean by that was at any time you're in a place and a level, and you can only see certain things, so there's no reason why you would need to draw the whole level, and if you did, things would be too slow, and you know, you could go to one end of the level and spin, and it would kind of go vroom, vroom, and it would slow down when you were looking down the long axis. <coughs> So, John tried a bunch of different ways to solve it. So he tried walking the BSP tree directly, and in 3D he concluded he couldn't really do it, although he did say, now I've solved doom visibility perfectly, too late. Um, <clears throat> he tried beam trees, which are basically kind of like uh, analog Z-buffers is the best way I could put it. Um, for a week I'd come in every day and he'd tried something else, but they all still had this bad worst case performance. So. I came in on a Monday, and there was John, looking a little tired, which is hard for John to do, because in case you haven't noticed, he's just never tired. He's very exuberant, yeah. <clears throat> and he showed me the level, and he spun around, and it spun around nice and smoothly. And he had worked on it all day Saturday, and he had gone home, and he had gone to bed, I believe, at 2 a.m., and he had been thinking about it, and then he realized how it should be, and he had gotten up and come back into the office and implemented it on Sunday without going to sleep, and then he had waited in the office until I got in Monday so he could show me, and that was what we shipped with, nice. and that was the potentially visible set, pre-calculated potentially visible set that I wrote up um, in uh, articles that were posted on Blues News. Now, the Quake development process was famous for being long and also uh, confusing, I guess, for different people because they were, parts would be rewritten over and over again and things like that. And then, of course, there was other conflicts with the, the design aspect of it. Were there any parts when you were working with John or working on the programming that things got a little rocky? Well, first of all, beginning to end for me, Quake was 15 or 16 months, which may have been long then, but it sure isn't long now. Um, <clears throat> There was never anything rocky with John. John is exactly what you think John would be like to work with. He's extremely focused on the task, he's interested in results, and everything was simply about how do we do these things right. Um, <clears throat> it's certainly true that we did more thinking up front than we should have. You know, you think, oh well, you should make sure what you're doing is the right thing, but what we really learned was that what you do is you think about interesting directions and you go prototype them and you see how they work. So we weren't going to have Z-buffers because it was obvious that Z-buffering hardware would never be fast enough and in software would be a bad idea. And then when we tried a non-Z-buffered approach, 
didn't work fast enough. We tried others, didn't work fast enough. We z-buffered and it worked. So, you know, I sort of now have a philosophy which is think about it till you can make good guesses and then see how those guesses work as opposed to thinking you can deduce the whole thing from scratch. There's never anything rocky with John. Um, going back to virtual reality for a second, I had asked uh, John about this and he admittedly had not done enough research to say, but what about the concept of using lichen medical technology, neural interfacing? So, you know, here's one thing about John. <clears throat> if John is interested in something, you can believe that that something is within the horizon in which it will become a viable product in a pretty deterministic way. Because John never, ever wastes his time. And I mean, when I was at, at id, people came around with VR stuff, and you know, he would just kind of look at it and say, this is not going to be successful. And uh, he is correct when he says that neural interfacing stuff may be interesting but it's not within the time frame that someone who thinks in terms of what might be a product in the next three years or even five years, there's not going to be neural interfacing in that time frame. I'm pretty confident about that. <clears throat> I mean, there are, there's a uh, professor at Cornell who's doing research on how encoding from the retina down the optic nerve works. I was a little surprised to find that out. Gabe actually dug up that piece of information. He did say it was further along than he thought. <clears throat> well. Yeah, I don't think John looked into it closely. All I'm saying is that there are people who are determining that, but, you know, think about it. You have to get the signal into a human's yeah. optic nerve or brain. And not kill them, yeah. Well, I mean, just just getting through the approvals for that, even if you had it working today, what would it take? And getting over people's... People don't even want to put in contact lenses, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, so have to be... someday, I, the thing is that doing the kind of VR that Palmer Lucky's doing, doing AR of varying degrees, this all will prepare potentially for a future in which neural interfacing would be the way to do it. But no one's going to jump directly to that. The other thing is that, um, what is the other thing? Another thing I haven't learned yet. Um, oh, the other thing is that once we do go to neural interfacing, if that happens, it won't really change anything. I mean, sure, you won't have this thing on your face, but you will effectively be getting visual input, what you perceive as visual input, and how it gets presented to your brain. I mean, you still have whatever UI you have, right? Because you're still looking through what you think are your eyes and so forth. So I don't think, <clears throat> it's kind of like, if you went back to 1995 and you developed the best BBS software in the world, how much value would that be to you now? How much value would evolving it have been to you? None, right? Mm -hmm. Because True. BBS was a transitional state. My belief is that both AR and VR, which will eventually merge into R. Uh, I guess it I'm not sure what you would call it. Because this is RR, real reality. So that would just be some other. Fully simulated plane. I, I, I'm not sure. Anyway. <clears throat> which does actually um, sound like virtual reality. It's hard to get. But um, similarly, I think a tablet is kind of a transitional technology because you don't really want to lug this thing around. But if you had the glasses on with the same kind of information, then that would be far more useful, which is what Google clearly sees, right? That's what they're doing. They want to replace your phone or your tablet. Similarly, the internet, if when the internet, if you invested your time in internet software in 1995, that would have huge value. And the internet appears to be kind of a final state, right? Where BBSs, modems, all that, those were intermediate states. This is a final state. What we'll see is refinements on that. More stuff delivered over it, maybe, you know, the structure will evolve, but 
you won't perceive it as a change to something new. Similarly, I think that once we get to wearable, it will evolve dramatically, as I said, but it will all be the same model, just getting better and better. And so that's an important distinction, that even if we get all the way to neural, direct neural connections, it won't really invalidate what Palmer did. It will just be an extension of what Palmer did. Right. And so at this point, what aspects of that is Valve, or what aspects of that are you really looking to do? Like, what are your focuses? What are you, what are the so, main issues you're trying to personally solve right now? Here, here's what, so first I'll tell you what's necessary for VR to work well. For VR to work well, you need a display technology that gives you an image that your eye and brain are happy with. Trust me, that's much harder than you think. People think it's just put an image up there and, oh, you see something. Even if it was a HUD, you wouldn't be that happy because you're always moving. Your head is never still, and this is moving relative to the world. And if your brain's trying to fuse it, that can be very tiring. So I'll just tell you there are lots of issues with getting that image up in front of you. <clears throat> Second thing is, if you want to do AR, and AR and VR are what are interesting to us because they're entertainment experiences, in that, right? Wearable computing, just getting information up, Google will be great at that. I mean, how could they not be? <clears throat> so if you want to put things up in the real world, you have to know exactly where you are and what you're looking at. Or you have to be able to process images so that you can put things in properly. So, you know, you've all seen iPhone apps where, you know, you can make people look silly or you can deform their faces or put hats on them or whatever. Well, if I want to put a hat on him, I have to know exactly where to put the hat. And as I move, as he moves, the hat has to do the right thing or it doesn't work. Right. <clears throat> so tracking. Tracking is a really hard problem. And both John and I talked about that. Knowing your angle is not so hard because you can get that out of a gyroscope. Mm -hmm. It does drift over time. <clears throat> Knowing your position is actually very hard. And uh, John talked about Sixth Sense um, Hydra or the Razor Hydra, based on Sixth Sense technology, which has a base station and then it can track things relative to it using magnetic stuff. Right. That's fine if you're within range of it. The range is not that great. And unfortunately, it's a one over cube drop-off, so the range is never going to be that big. <clears throat> um, so I think the solution is very similar to the way humans work. Humans have this three-axis attitude sensor, mm -hmm. and then your visual system corrects for that. And so if we have a gyroscope and then we have a camera and the camera does the correction for that, that I think is a long-term solution. But doing that processing requires a camera that can do things fast with high enough resolution and also requires processing all that information. And that's a power issue, that's a processing issue, it's an algorithmic issue. These are hard problems. There's one example. If you were just to say, okay, I'm sitting here and I want to know which way I'm looking, I want to be able to reorient myself. You know how far it is to any pixel down there that I could use to orient myself? And it's not very well lit, right? In general, to do this in general is a hard problem. Right. So <clears throat> you've got tracking, you've got display, um, you've got input. What's your input? So for VR right now, it's a game controller, or it could be a keyboard mouse. That's great, because what it lets us do is say, we have a class of games, first-person shooters, we have a class of input, game controllers or keyboard and mouse. All we're changing is the head mount display. And doing it incrementally that way is far, far more feasible because you know how to enter that space, you know how to give people an experience they want to have quickly. <clears throat> In the long run, it seems unlikely that that's the interface you want. I right. mean, maybe you want to manipulate things with your hands, which could be you know, a Kinect-like thing. They could be gloves, who knows. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you just have a little you know, touchpad on your finger. 
uh, maybe it's gesture-based. I mean, any of you read Rainbow's End by Werner Vinge? So in that, he just describes it as people control things by kind of shrugging or moving. or It's like they've learned this language of interacting with smart clothes. Okay, that sounded to me like he kind of hand-waved it because he didn't have a good solution. Because <laughs> he very specifically said that the AR comes from contact lenses with lasers in them, right? So that, that's a pretty specific way to put it. <clears throat> so input is actually wide open. I doubt, and there's speech too, of course. I doubt there's one input modality. I think there are potentially quite a few input modalities, but that's a space to be explored. Right. So all those things are going to get figured out over an extended period of time. One thing that I would have said in the panel, but we kind of ran out of time. You know, people were saying, well, looking around, and that's not how I'm used to playing, and how's that going to work? <clears throat> so, you guys, I assume, play first-person shooters? Oh, of course. Yes. Of course. So, I can tell you that there was a day, how long ago? 17 years ago, when no one had ever heard the word mouse look. Right. John had to figure that out. It wasn't clear how the mouse would look. It wasn't even clear whether moving forward would make you look up or down, right? I mean... Which way should it work? Yeah. John had to go and figure out the entire syntax of controlling first-person games. And, you know, he'll just do exactly the same thing with this, but it has to be figured out. It's one of the interesting right. problems. This is not the same space. Well, and with the input method, the other thing of it is, like, because I got to try out the prototype that John has today, um, and I enjoyed it a lot, but there was this awkward, because of the way it was so immersive, I had this weird disconnect whenever there wasn't it's, feedback. It's because you're... Whatever. Well, it's also because you're providing an acceleration vector, not a position vector. Right. Right. So if you had a trackball and you were going like this, mm -hmm. you would have felt much more comfortable about the control you had over your experience. Yeah. And I mean, I felt like I had a decent <coughs> level of control, but it was more just that, like, and this is the thing that comes up with motion control, too, is I can do something or the world can react to me. Like, let's say a demon leaps at me and hits my character. Well, in the real world, like, I, I actually flinched. I was like, ugh. But there was no feeling. So, so that's part of input, but uh -huh. I mean, my personal feeling, and this is far enough out that this isn't something that I personally oh, yeah. am looking at, but my speculation is that there will be haptic devices, and that once you have immersive VR that people really are using so that there's a market for it, uh -huh. there will be experiments all over the place, right? I mean, they'll probably, my guess is there will be some kind of form-fitting, shirt-like thing, and it has some kind of... Um, kind of percussive devices so it can tap right. on your chest right down your arms I mean that seems like an obvious and manageable thing but there are so many ways that could go right yeah. I had a family medical emergency I was supposed to be here yesterday for John's keynote have dinner with John right. I, yesterday morning I uh, canceled everything and then my daughter very generously volunteered to come up from California and take care of the emergency so I could come to this and I really wanted to come to this and part of it is because this is a seminal moment. It's possible VR will not succeed, but I think that this is this is the shot it has. I mean, right now it's the best shot it's ever had by far. Right. And it has a really good chance um, of this being the beginning of it. I mean, really the beginning, I have to be clear, things are going to be way, way better, and we don't know it. It was obvious, <clears throat> it was obvious with Quake about, you know, that or even Doom, they say, well, first-person shooter, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's obvious you want to go in the third dimension and have, have a game with, with Wolfenstein, kind of the third dimension. Um, but what was not obvious with Quake was that you'd get that hardware change of the Internet, and you'd be able to have 
permanent um, servers, and then you'd be able to have people putting up their own sites, that you'd be able to have um, clans, widespread mods, tournaments, the whole thing, right? I mean, and that was really, seeing that was John's bit of genius. The rest of it was John's excellent engineer, right? Yes. But it seems obvious now it was not obvious at that time. The question is, with this, yes, it's obvious you can go and have a first-person shooter and have an immersive experience. But the real question is, what's going to happen that hasn't happened before? Right. It will be a new experience. Well, the, the possibility that really excites me that I was thinking about while you guys were talking is it could be, in theory, you could do a lot of games with a lot less of a focus on violent acts because like, you have your head movement and stuff being a key part of the experience. So what if the game detected like you were staring at someone for too long? Like, you could simulate awkwardness. Like, how amazing would that be? It's true. And, you, you know, people don't even think in these terms, but you could have just a game in front of you that you can, in whatever controller you have, but reach out and turn to get at parts of. You could do, you know, like an HL Railroad game or a Railroad Tycoon type game, and you could move it around you to get to different parts or teleport to it, but actually be able to get up close to manipulate things, right? Very different kinds of games. I don't know what they are. How about, you know, a Rubik's Cube type thing? Right. <clears throat> so, I think if we went back to, you know, 2005 and said, well, I'm going to give you this phone and it's going to have as much processing as a computer from, you know, five years ago, and a touch interface, I don't think you would have immediately said, oh, these are the games that we're going to end up with being successful. And you probably wouldn't also have predicted that there would be so many people buying them. There would be such a big market. So I don't know what it'll turn into. I'm just pretty confident that VR will turn into that as long as the, those pieces of the hardware I just described mm -hmm. can be good enough. And that's really the, that's the thing that has to happen. I think that Palmer's stuff will be good enough to get this started, and then it has to evolve rapidly. Right. And so this sort of, this mentality, especially that Valve has been presenting, of being very future-minded and saying, like, here's a thing that we're very passionate about and we think is going to catch on in time, that sort of, at least to the public, has become, has really become apparent recently. Like, it's only, for a while, you know, you guys, you made games, and that's what people knew you for, but you're doing more now. So what was the evolution towards that? Like, well, the first thing I'll point out is Steam was definitely in the category of yes, future looking at that time. But it was time. still like a very ten, like it was a gaming product. It was, you know. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. Um, <clears throat> the process really was saying what what could be interesting going forward. Uh -huh. um, that's the way I would put it. It's that it it it's easy to think in terms of what you already know how to do, and. Uh, to think in terms of how can I iterate on the things that are already well understood and continue to be successful, and that's a good thing to do. But the question is, how can we be far enough ahead so that new possibilities will open up? Uh -huh. And so I kind of spent some time looking at what technologies are out there and trying to think of, well, trying to put myself back in you know, 2002 and saying, how might the world change? going forward in the next three to five years, or maybe 2004 would be more accurate. <clears throat> and uh, talked with a lot of people. I mean, this was certainly not, not like I sat down and I said, oh, this is the deal. But it just became clear to me that there was a convergence of technologies. There were a lot of technologies coming together. At that time, the way I thought it was, a lot of technologies coming together to enable AR. Um, and those include mobile, which gives you all the processing and wireless stuff you need, which is critical. Um, stuff in optics, stuff in projectors, I mean, the fact that there are all different kinds of tiny projectors now with high resolution. Um, um, 
display technology, and if I thought about it, I'd come up with a few more, but it seemed like all those pieces were coming together, and it was very obvious to me that that was going to be, at some point, and 20 years from now, I think some form of that, maybe the neural, direct neural interface, was going to be what we were all doing, just like we're all carrying our phones around. And, you know, it's funny, but the phones seem convenient, sleek, awesome, high technology, but um, do you remember your first laptop? How would it look now? Mine was actually a luggable. It weighed 28 pounds. It had a plasma screen. But it could be taken places, and that was pretty amazing, right? I mean, I remember, you know, my first computer, these big towers, huge amounts of heat, first laser printer, right? Um, so these, these are not where we're going to end up, in my opinion. Um, and so the question is, what is fun? What is an entertaining experience? What is it that people are going to want to do with AR? And that's a hard question, because you have to have prototypes before you can even think about it. You know, everybody can sit around and say, oh, well, you can, you know, put a hat on someone's head, or you can change their face, or you can, you know, LARP, or you can right. geocache. And it's like, maybe that'll be fun. I don't know. I think we should get there and find out, but we need to do those experiences. <clears throat> and so we set out to figure out what would the technologies be able to do in that time frame? Or what could happen? So if you go read my blog, the latest post explains why we're not going to have hard AR in that time frame. Absolutely flat out for sure. I'm pretty confident. Maybe someone will solve this and I would be thrilled. It's kind of, you know, it's one of those things where I'd love to be wrong because I mean, this would be better than I thought. Right. <clears throat> but you're not, you, you can only add color in, you can't overwrite things um, with AR because you're putting up, but you're also seeing through, so the photons are out of it. So I can't replace his face with another face. I can only superimpose something on it that blends with it. Well, that's pretty significant because it says you're never going to do something except in a dark room, which is VR, where you think, oh, this is completely real and it's replaced something in the real world. <clears throat> so there's a whole branch of that tree that just got lopped off, right? Because you say, well, we're not going to be in Rainbow's End or Snow Crash in that time frame. Not going to happen. Um, and then you can sort of go down through this whole spectrum of things, and at, one, at the end of it, you have Google Glass, right? right? Where you say, it will show you information sort of out of your line of sight. And, that's useful. I mean, I think Google is doing something very, very pragmatic and that will, is a good step into this for them. Absolutely. Um, but it's not interesting to us because we're an entertainment company, right? We do games. <clears throat> so what we did was we went to look in each of those areas that I talked about, projectors, displays, input, uh, tracking, and we're figuring out what we think can be there in that time frame and what kind of experiences can be delivered given that. Um, now, in the process of doing it, I've become aware that AR is hard. You could quote me on that. <laughs> and AR is hard in a lot of different axes. It's hard because generally, walk around AR, how do you know where you are, right? If you say you're sitting in a room and the room is not too big and you've mapped the room out already, then sure, okay, maybe you can know what the things are and you can tell where you are as long as nobody walks past and confuses it or whatever. Go out in the real world, walk around this room down here, how do you know exactly where you are and what you're looking at? Tough problem. Um, <clears throat> getting the power for something that you can wear all day, that's difficult. Getting a wide field of view with AR is a challenge. Um, it's much harder if it's, it has to be see-through. Anyway, there's a whole list of reasons why AR is really challenging. The general walk around AR. Right. <clears throat> so I thought about, well, what else is interesting and what might have potential? And it's interesting that I came to the conclusion that VR was kind of different but equal and that they would eventually converge. 
AR will have a, I think, a bigger impact. It will be broader in the long run. But in the long run, AR and VR will be the same thing, and you'll just opaque your glasses to different extents depending on what you're doing. And a lot of your experiences will be VR. And, I mean, the idea that if you get high enough resolution, you can just put your screens around you or you can put whatever you want around you. Because when you sit at your desk, you don't want AR. What would you use AR for sitting there in front of your screen? What you really want is VR and not to have the screen. And then your desk is wherever you choose to be. Right. Um, <clears throat> when you sit in your living room and watch TV or play a game, those aren't AR experiences either, generally. Now, when you go out in the world, that's AR. And that will radically change the way you interact with the world and with other people. So I don't want to downplay it in any way. I just want to say that when, you're, when you have your magic AR glasses many years in the future, you will still want to be doing VR-ish things a lot. Also, VR is all about entertainment, right? Right now, what else would you do in VR? Well, with AR, you can do other things. So, VR just, and VR is clearly more tractable. You don't have to solve all the problems. It's much easier to solve the where am I in the tracking problem. You have opacity, so you don't have to, uh, you don't have to engineering problems with see-through. A <clears throat> whole bunch of reasons. So, I came to the conclusion that VR was equally interesting to look at and more tractable and more near term. And then, amusingly, then I talked with John about it and I heard about Palmer. It was like, okay, well, that, that's nice reinforcement. It seems <laughs> like that might actually be the case. Now, in terms of AR, this one you may, may or may not have heard of, there's a app for iPhone and I think for Android as well that basically you interface with the game by walking around and a GPS tracks you and on Google Maps there's imaginary hordes of zombies that you and your friend you have multiplayer and it'll track you. Do you consider that a sort of AR beta? <clears throat> it's AR. I mean there's lots of AR stuff being done on phones. The difference between AR that appears to be in the world and AR that you see by holding up your phone or looking at your phone and also that is based on GPS accuracy, right? It's just, it's it's a different experience, but those are all, they're definitely AR of a kind. Um, it's just much, it's a spectrum, and at one end of the spectrum, you can't tell what's real and what's not, and the other end of the spectrum, you're holding your phone up so you can see the zombies, right? <laughs> so I guess you could say that more what you're pursuing, to put it in a term, would be true AR. We're, we're pursuing what could... What wearable stuff could exist that would enable you to have new, compelling entertainment experiences? So it could be anything. It could be VR, or in theory, could Valve do? Would Valve consider doing an AR game if it was actually just like really, I guess, immersive enough, but also just really fun and entertaining? Something that primarily takes place in the real world. Sure. And you go around and you do whatever. It's, and yeah. it's about about giving customers experiences right. that they want. It's about fun. It's an so, experience, and you go for it. We'll do whatever it takes to make that stuff happen, and it's, it's a big space and it's unexplored. Yep. But the one thing I'll point out with AR is that you really don't know what is a fun experience. So you can talk about basically geocaching or LARPing, because that's really pretty much LARPing as far as I'm concerned. Most people just aren't that excited about it. It requires interacting with the actual world around you, which makes it dependent on the world. and it does, It's not a concentrated experience. And so maybe that'll be fun. Maybe it'll be the Farmville of AR, right? Which a lot of people play, so I don't mean to downplay that. I was, uh, but we're looking for deep, rich experiences that you, you know, want to do for a long time. I don't know what they are. I'm not a game designer, remember? I just, the technology has to be there. 
again, hardware changes and enables things. I mean, this is what John told me a long time ago. It's so true. So the first question is, how can the hardware change to best support experiences? That's what we're really looking at. And then I only have one more real question. Um, you were mentioning a, a lot of sci-fi, and that's interesting because I like that crossover between, like, basically art or life imitating art, more or less. And so is that sort of a, has that ever, like, very literally guided you? Have you ever said, seen something and said, that sounds like an interesting concept, let's try and make it more? <clears throat> Boy, it, it's a little, it's a little hard to separate that because, um, there's just kind of this giant collection of things that I believe at some unconscious level are real. Because I've read about them and I've internalized them and it's like, oh, heck, yeah. I mean, obviously those things must be possible. Haven't we done them yet? And <clears throat> so it's like when I, when I read Snow Crash, I remember thinking, okay, I don't really believe that that, that display system could possibly work. Right. But at the same time, I remember thinking, huh, I could imagine how I could write about 80% of this right now. And that was that was actually right before John asked me to come work at it the second time. And there was clearly a direct connection, right? Um, and I've told this story before, but I knew that John, would, John had asked me a year before if I wanted to come to it, and I was in the middle of Windows NT. <clears throat> and I said no, and I knew I'd say no this time too. But we went to dinner, and he didn't ask me that. He just started... Uh, talking about how there are going to be persistent servers out on the internet and people were, he's going to build up, but people build their own and they could add on, you'd walk from one to the next and cyberspace would agree. That seems like not that big a step from the metaverse and Snowcraft. <clears throat> and um, so did I specifically say I'm going to build the metaverse? No. Because the metaverse was clearly not buildable at that time. Right. Was there something in my head saying I can imagine how this could happen, which is pretty amazing. Uh, it's like the first time in my life I really had that sense of something from science fiction could also be reality. And that clearly strongly influenced me. I mean, I, I do believe that if I had happened to come across Snow Crash <clears throat> when I took my daughter to look for a book one day and uh, read it, that I might well not have gone to it, <clears throat> which would have been unfortunate. Yeah, it's really interesting. So, but it's never like I've read a book and I've said, oh, that guy has told me how to do it. Now, <laughs> if Werner would tell somebody how to build contacts with lasers, then I would say, yeah, <clears throat> that would be pretty awesome. Be a good book title, too, how to build contacts with lasers in them. I'd buy it. Well, you know, uh, a guy named Babak Barvitz, who's now leading Guru Glass, who was a UW, uh -huh. um, built a contact lens with an LED and a power antenna, and it could light that one LED with no, no wire going into it. <clears throat> Unfortunately, that's a path that I have a very hard time seeing pan out in the long run because for each LED you need to have a micro lens so that the rays, because you can't focus at that distance. So right. you have to have a micro lens to accommodate the rays so they come from infinity. And so you can imagine a matrix of LEDs and lenses, but there are limits below which you can't make the lens any shorter because of the wavelength of light. And that limit doesn't leave you with very high resolution. So unfortunately, that's not probably going to be that feasible. Still, pretty cool. Yeah.